Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series, A Portrait of Christian Faithfulness, today as we look into 3 John verses 1 to 8. So let's join Dr. Newfeld now as he brings us a message entitled, God's Often Unnoticed People. The Bible tells us of a crisis in the life of David. It came at a time when he was not yet king and at a time when he was fleeing from King Saul. So while David and his men were on assignment, the Amalekites made a raid against Ziglag. And, and Ziglag was the city where David's family stayed, along with the families of the 600 fighting men that were a part of his small militia. So when David and his men came back to Ziglag, the city had not only been burned to the ground, but their wives and their children had all been taken as captives. That would have meant that their families were going to be sold off as slaves. And so David, along with his men, immediately put together the most basic resources, and they went on a long pursuit. And along the way, because of the rigors of the pursuit, they soon realized that some of the men couldn't keep up. They were just exhausted. And David left 200 behind to take care of the baggage. They decided that they could travel even lighter, knowing that 200 men would care for their resources, and those resources would be available if they ever needed them. Well, to make a long story short, David's men attacked the Amalekite camp with a vengeance, and they rescued their families. And so nothing was missing, whether wives or children or their goods. And they also captured a great deal of spoil from the defeated Amalekites. And that brings us back to the men who stayed with the baggage. 1 Samuel 30 says that some of the wicked men among David's troops suggested that the men who guarded the baggage should not share in the booty that had been captured. But in response, David would later make it a statute in Israel that he who guards the military baggage and the man who fights in the battle, that both would share equally in the rewards of the battle. See, I think that Jesus had the very same philosophy. Do you remember his words? They're recorded in Matthew 10, verse 41. Let me read it to you. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. See, that is, the one who supports the full-time missionary or the evangelist or the preacher or the teacher of the Word of God shares fully in the reward. They're like the man who guards the military equipment. They make it possible for the preacher of Jesus to go out into the world. Like David, Jesus made it a rule that whoever supports the ministry in the final day is as significantly rewarded as the one who goes out. See, I can't help but draw an application here to those of you who are monthly partners to this ministry, making sure we remain on the air or online, that you're rewarded as highly in the kingdom of heaven as those who preach the gospel. That's Christ's own rule for eternity. And so as we've been studying 3 John, let me introduce to you one of God's often unnoticed people, but one who, when we get to heaven, well, we're going to see that, that he shares fully in the reward for the growth of the early church and the evangelization of the world. His name is not John or Paul or Peter. His name is Gaius. And just before we get going, I hope you see the importance of all of that. If you're one of God's often unnoticed people, this message today is for you, so, so listen up. Let's start first by examining the godly character of the man and then what it is that he did 
that makes us come to the conclusion that he shares fully in the reward of the apostles and the prophets. So I'm reading 3 John verses 1 to 4. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Let's start by admitting we simply don't know anything about this man other than his name is Gaius. Now, if you're especially astute Bible reader, you might say, well, wait a minute. I think I've heard that name before. And with a little bit of work, you might go to Acts chapter 19 and there... You remember that as Paul is preaching in Ephesus, the place that would, by the end of the first century, become, you know, the center of the global Christian church, well, you might remember that at the start, Ephesus certainly didn't accept the gospel. So a riot broke out in the city, opposing the preaching of Paul. Now, Acts 19, verse 29 says, So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. Now, here you might wonder, you know, is this Gaius? Is that the same man, the one who is one of Paul's traveling companions? Is he the same man that John is addressing in this book? Ah, but there is another Gaius. We find him mentioned in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 14. And there Paul writes, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. You see, that Gaius, the one that was baptized by Paul in Corinth, well, he's probably the same Gaius that's mentioned in Romans 16, verse 23. That Gaius is Paul's host as he stays in Gaius' home in Corinth. Now, are either one of those two Gaiuses the same one John mentions in this letter? Well, probably not. See, the fact is that the name Gaius was very common in those days. And so this Gaius, the one in 3 John, is just, well, he's just another one of the, the many Gaiuses in the world and just another Gaius who came to know Jesus as his Savior and Lord. See, I use this to say this Gaius in 3 John could have been confused with another Gaius, and, and that way he's a man who's most easily gone unnoticed. But we do know that John the Apostle noticed him. We've already noticed from our last study of this passage that John has been praying for him, that he would prosper and be in good health, as John could clearly see that was what was happening to his soul. That is to say, it might have been that Gaius was not always physically healthy, but John could see that it was true that he was always spiritually healthy. Indeed, he was exceptionally healthy in his spiritual life. And then as we look at just how spiritually healthy he was, well, we notice in verse 3 that some of the brothers have come to John and they've been telling him about Gaius. Well, who are these brothers that reported, you know, a spiritually healthy man, Gaius? Well, as we will see, these brothers were traveling evangelists and, and Bible teachers. And they had encountered Gaius and without exception, all of them were deeply impressed by this man's Christian life. Now, what was it that impressed them? Was it that they saw his preaching or his leadership? Well, apparently not, for no one ever mentions that. And so we've got to assume that Gaius has no place of leadership in the local church. Well, so what's so impressive about him? Well, notice that the key word here is the word truth. In verse 1, John says he loves him in the truth. And then in verse 3, the traveling preachers notice his truth. 
And then at verse 4, John affirms that Gaius is walking in the truth. So let's start with verse 4. John says that he has no greater joy than when his children are walking in the truth, and that implies that John thought of Gaius as one of his children. And the most likely explanation for that line is that John may have been the man who led Gaius to faith in Jesus. Perhaps it was when Gaius heard John preach, or perhaps it was the result of personal evangelism. Well, we're not told. But but after his conversion, John, no doubt, was watching his life, and he found him to be a man that was walking in the truth. Well, walking in the truth implies at least two realities. First, it implies that Gaius had become familiar with the truth. That is, Gaius is deeply immersed in Christian doctrine. He knows the truth of the gospel. He understands the nature of Jesus. He knows what Christ has accomplished on the cross. And as we're going to see, Gaius also knows how to spot false teaching. He knows the teaching of the heretics and he stays away from it. See, this man knows the deep things of Christ. He may not be a preacher, but he knows Christian truth, and he knows it quite well. But unlike some who only know truth and don't know how to live by the truth, we're going to find out that Gaius is humble, and he's obedient to Christ, and he's a man of devotion to Christ. His soul, says John, is prospering in Jesus. So here's a man of deep commitment to Jesus as his Lord and Savior, And here's a man who can be counted on to take a stand for the gospel. So indeed, both this knowledge of the truth and walking in the truth makes John say something quite unique about this man. See, in verse 3, he speaks about Gaius' truth. You know, I know in our day, sometimes people speak about my truth as if, you know, you have your truth and I have my truth and it's all a matter of perspective. That's not what John says about Gaius. Gaius' truth is exactly the same as the truth of Jesus. Gaius so deeply believes the truth that the truth has become his. And John already thinks this about Gaius, but now visiting preachers have come back and they report how impressed they have been with this godly and yet ordinary Christian. It doesn't matter where you live. The secular culture around the globe has taken its hold in our communities. It's clear that as Christians, we can't isolate ourselves from the culture around us. We need to be set apart, but how can we do that? If Christians are called to do more than just condemn what is wrong, how do we do it? There's a culture that exists today that is destructive and harmful. So how can we live as an alternative to it? How can we truly live out the alternative lifestyle that God has called us to live? Well, the first step is to open the Bible and see what God's Word has to say. In Dr. Newfeld's series, An Alternative Lifestyle, Dr. John does just that by diving into the book of Philemon. And we're excited to offer the series to you on CD as our gift. To get your copy of An Alternative Lifestyle, all you need to do is visit us at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. We've been getting a character description of an ordinary Christian man by the name of Gaius. And in the process, we've come to see that there are a great many men and women of God who, well, they know their Bible well. They understand the deep truths of the faith extremely well. 
They're not preachers or teachers. And the reason they've immersed themselves deeply in the Word is not because they plan to teach it, but because they plan to live it and apply it to their own lives. I've met all sorts of men and women like this. There's a holiness that surrounds them. There's a a deep abiding love and a passion for Jesus. There's a a wisdom that allows them to apply Scripture to their own lives and, and to the lives of their children. They apply it in their workplace and in every situation where they find themselves. They are God's humble and effective servants in every area of life. These are the great saints that we hardly notice, but but I assure you, God notices them. For centuries, men and women of faith have been living just like Gaius. You know, for my part as a pastor for many years, I've come to count on these dear brothers and sisters. When they pray for me, I have sensed it. And when I hear of John identifying himself as the elder or the pastor or the shepherd, I understand what he's talking about. He says, I love you in the truth. And now when I hear of pastors and missionaries and evangelists talking about their ministry, well, these faithful ones mention you, Gaius, as a man of God and a man who's walking in the truth. But still, not only do we find that Gaius has a godly character, but we also find that this man, who's not a pastor or leader, but has a very effective ministry. So let's read 3 John verses 5 to 8. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Well, in essence, we see that Gaius has been exercising his spiritual gift, and that's of hospitality. Now, let's just be clear how important this ministry was in the New Testament day. Notice the command in Romans 12, verse 13. It says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Or you might remember the very famous words in Hebrews 13, verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. See, I think a little explanation is in order here. In the Roman world of the New Testament times, inns were not like, you know, the Howard Johnson hotels or motels as we think of them today. That was unknown in that time period. Indeed, the concept of a modern inn is, in fact, a modern concept. You might remember that when Joshua sent spies into Jericho, they ended up in the house of a prostitute. That's probably because the only public place where one could stay overnight was there. And you might remember at the birth of Jesus, there was no room in the inn, but that's not a motel room. It's most likely just a guest chamber in a house. And that's the point. Public inns were either places that could accommodate large caravans or houses with a guest room. Many public inns had a very bad reputation. They were noted to be houses of thieves and criminals and prostitutes, and they were definitely not for Christian leaders. Now, let's add to that thought another idea. Before the New Testament was completed, it was absolutely necessary for traveling preachers who had heard the doctrines of the apostles and the prophets to travel from church to church to teach the truths about Jesus. Remember, they have no Bible in which to do this. The the entire church is dependent on faithful Bible teachers who could instruct local churches. 
And this has its own problems. You remember that John warned about this very thing. And here I'm reading 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. There John writes, they went out from us, but they were not of us. You know, John might have been referring to itinerant preachers who went out preaching a false gospel. And we do know that Paul warns the Ephesians of what he, in Acts 20, verse 29, calls savage wolves who come in among you. You know, he's speaking of false teachers who find their way into homes. And in Philippians 3, Paul calls the Judaizers false teachers. He says they're dogs and evildoers. And one of the reasons we have the New Testament letters is that they provide an authentic Christian teaching and seek to undermine the many false teachers and evangelists and theologians who were creating confusion among God's people. Indeed, if you know the book of 2 John, you'll remember that John writes a certain woman who's opened her home or her house to traveling Christian teachers, but her problem was that she wasn't discerning. And so to this woman, John has to write, many deceivers have gone out into the world, and in this case, these false teachers that were coming to this woman's house were mixing Greek philosophy with Christian teaching, and they were teaching that Jesus didn't really exist in human flesh. And that's because, you know, many Greek philosophers believed that physical existence was a lower level of existence, and so these false teachers in Christian churches were teaching that Jesus came in a spiritual form and not with a true body. And the woman in 2 John had allowed those very teachers to stay in her home, and through her, those false teachers had gained access to the church, and they were leading many astray. But Gaius would have none of that. He was walking in the truth, and he was familiar with the truth, with authentic, true teaching about the real Jesus. So let's get a sense of Gaius' ministry. 3 John 3 says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. See, Gaius was doing his share of welcoming traveling Christian preachers into his home. He could spot a phony. He could spot the real deal as well. And so he made his home available for faithful traveling Christian preachers. They were strangers to him, but that didn't matter. He was advancing the gospel by giving preachers a cup of cold water. He was guarding the military baggage while God's servants went to war for the truth of the gospel. John calls this activity a faithful thing. And I need to stop here to to recount the thousands and thousands of examples of Christians throughout history who have done precisely the very same thing, whether through giving or in some other way. They've made the preaching of the gospel a possibility. That's called faithfulness to Jesus. That's called putting feet to your faith. Now let's go to verse 6. You know, in the first part of that verse, John says that these faithful preachers were talking about Gaius and his deep love, not just for Jesus, but for the church of Jesus. But still not done. Notice what John says next, and here it's in the latter part of verse 6 and then into verse 7. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Do you wonder what John meant when he said sending them out in a manner worthy of God? See, look, these traveling preachers were not accepting money from pagans or from the non-Christian world. They're, they're completely dependent on the Christian community for hospitality and to have their basic needs met when they travel. 
I find it fascinating in our day how many Christian ministries have become dependent on the Gentiles, or in our day on government grants. And what's the result? Well, sometimes, not even gradually, key areas of ministry have to be sacrificed. I mean, one example is that in Canada, this has happened to many Christian ministries who were dependent on government grants for summer programs. And suddenly the government demanded that each ministry sign a declaration that they agreed with abortion. See, there's something wonderfully freeing about being completely dependent only on Christians who deeply and passionately believe the gospel of Jesus and who will sacrifice to see the gospel advance. No government, no non-Christian charity carries that same passion. Gaius carried that passion. Now look at verse 8. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth, and that's Gaius. He's like David's men who watch the military gear. He's like Jesus' man who gives a cup of cold water to a prophet. Gaius is like the countless men and women who are often unnoticed by the world. The world may notice courageous Christian leaders who who proclaim God's truth, sometimes to praise them and sometimes to jeer them. The world does not notice those who have sacrificed all for the cause of Christ to make it happen. What many miss are the Gaiuses of this world. Let me ask you, dear friend, are you a Gaius? Does it bother you that you're not in the limelight? Please know this, you are in God's limelight and you share in the reward of a prophet. Those are the words of Jesus. John, I'm struck by the economy of God. It's so much different than ours. Uh, uh, What he does and sometimes and how he does it, and sometimes we're not satisfied by that, but God sees things differently. Yeah, you know, I love this idea that, um, you know, the one that stays with the bags is equal to the person who fights uh, the battle. The one who gives the cup of cold water is equal to the man who, who, uh, who prophesies. I, I, you know, this, this idea of the person who allows ministry to happen because of their diligent work behind the limelight, in God's economy, those are highly valued people. So, you know, I guess I always want to say, if you're Gaius, or if you're a person who has a ministry like Gaius, uh, please don't complain to God. In fact, God highly honors you. He, he views your ministry as highly effective. Uh, be pleased with God's honoring of you. Thanks so much, John. Great words of encouragement. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, A Portrait of Christian Faithfulness, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Have you ever wondered how to live a life of faithfulness and service to Christ? For those of us not working in full-time ministry, it can be hard to find ways to be faithful to our Savior in the daily routines of life. Is it possible to live a life of unwavering faithfulness? I'd like to invite you to join in and listen as we work through a five-message series on the book of 3 John. 3 John is the shortest book in the New Testament, and in spite of its brevity, This book provides us with a portrait of what Christians in the early church did when it came to living a life of faith. 3 John provides us with a reference point of what a life of faithfulness should look like, even if we don't work in full-time ministry. It's amazing what God can do when we allow ourselves to be taught by His Word. 
Listen to this station every day this week to follow along with the series or listen online at backtothebible.ca.